Good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. We have a lot to be thankful for this morning as we were singing, just overwhelmed by God's goodness and grace to us. I hope as you were singing, you, you were thinking about what you were singing. And uh, I could have just kept on singing, to be honest with you. We could have just kept on going. That would have been fine with me. And, uh, and I, hope, I hope that that, that ministered to your heart as, as well as it did mine. A lot of heaviness going on in our world, isn't there? A lot of heaviness going on around the globe. In fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray again here in a, in a moment. I know usually we pray after our offering and then we have announcements and then we pray again before we come. I just uh, feel burdened to pray again for us. Uh, I'm thinking about those um, up in Maine this week and the tragedy that was uh, worked there by a man in his anger as he shot and killed 18 at least. And then I think of Israel and Gaza this week as hundreds and thousands of people are entering eternity on both sides. And then I, I, we had a memorial service this last week, and uh, we actually had our, 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 really our first official memorial service here at the building, uh, where we actually had a service. Uh, Joel and Rachel Whitman, Rachel Whitman's mother passed away, and uh, her family was here, and I was just overwhelmed by their need, and uh, I, I don't think Rachel would mind me telling you that, I... I looked out on the faces of her family and her loved ones, and many of them are lost. I want you to know they were sitting right here in these chairs on Wednesday. I mean, we're talking about people that are lost. Lost people. What a joy it was to be able to preach the gospel to them and give them the gospel. But I just thought, well, I'd love to see those people come and, and, and know Christ. And those are the people we want to reach, the lost people. I don't, I don't want to just build... Trinity Church with people changing churches, you know. I'm thankful for people that come to Trinity. I'm thankful for people that, that find a church home here because we're preaching the Bible and we're going to preach the Bible. We're going to preach true doctrine, right doctrine, but we want to see lost people come and know Christ. So let's pray. Can we do that? Pray for people this week in their lostness. Father, we come to you just expressing a deep burden and a deep sadness for our world and for people. I think of Rachel and her family. I think of the lostness that is present there and just the need. They need to see you. They need to see your goodness. They need to see the gospel. And Lord, we we want them to see it. We cannot uncover their eyes. We cannot make them understand. I pray for Rachel and Joel as they minister to her family in the coming days and weeks and months, I pray that you would, by your mercy and grace, give light and cause understanding and that you would bring them to you and salvation. I pray for Israel and Gaza. Lord, we're so quick to choose sides and forget that these are people, people made as your image, people made to glorify you, and they are being extinguished. They are being killed by man and their anger and man and their rage. And we cry out for them, mercy upon them. I pray that you would work. And we know you're working. We know you're bringing your glory again upon the earth. We find hope in that. And I pray that you would, in the midst of that horrible, horrible darkness, you would bring light. And I pray for those in Maine. I pray for every one of those families. I pray for the family of the man who took the lives of so many in his own life. Lord, we don't grieve, we don't grieve those people as much as we should. The people who take life are to be grieved as well, for they are lost. And I pray that you would bring, again, healing through your gospel, 
that you would use that. I pray for the pastors in that area. I pray for the churches in that area, that they would be a light of the gospel there in the midst of such tragedy. And I pray for our country as we like to point the finger at each other, as we like to put the blame on others. I pray that we would point instead to the gospel and the only hope we have is in you, Jesus. I pray that that's where we would find our hope even this morning and uh, that we would look, as we just sang, that we would look to you. We pray all this in your name for your sake. Amen. We come to Genesis 4 this morning. Genesis 4, a very familiar story for all of us, I'm sure. But as we open Genesis 4 this morning, there are a lot of questions hanging in the air. The first three chapters of Genesis, we see God in his goodness create all things by the power of his word. That is who God is, and his word is powerful. As the crowning achievement of his creation, he creates mankind to represent him and rule in his name for his glory upon the earth. God's design, we find, for man and woman, his design, his plan, the roles and responsibilities given to man and woman, these are exceedingly good in every way. Exceedingly good in every way. We find in chapter 2, verse 25, the summary there of chapter 2, man and woman, Adam and Eve, are naked and unashamed, which is a wonderful summary of the condition they enjoy there at the end of chapter 2. They are naked and unashamed. Nothing to be ashamed of unhindered relationship with one another, unhindered fellowship with God. But then in Genesis 3, we are introduced to another voice. In Genesis 3, we find another voice in the garden, a voice that calls into question the goodness of God and the clarity of his word. Did God say the voice presents an alternate, alternative view. Maybe God is lying. If, if you'll listen to this, you'll, you'll hear this voice in your own mind and heart many times. Maybe God is lying. Maybe he's not good. Maybe my freedom and purpose is up to me to take for myself and find for myself. Genesis 3, as it unfolds, shows us what mankind chooses. Mankind chooses to listen to that opposing voice. And it shows us the disastrous consequences of sin By the way, a sinful choice is what each and every one of us makes because that is our inherited nature. Genesis 3 blows out of the water any idea that man is good. We have inherited a sinful nature from our first parents. So, Genesis 3, in effect, gives us a mirror. Genesis 3 provides a mirror for us to look and see ourselves. This is what Genesis 3 should do for us. But also existing in Genesis 3 is the seed of hope. Indeed, the seeds of the gospel are found here in Genesis 1 through 3. If you want to understand the Bible, if you want to understand the gospel, it starts by understanding Genesis 1 through 3. 
Even as the Lord is handing down judgment upon Adam and Eve, he gives them hope. The woman will still bear children. And in this offspring given to the woman, there will be one, there will be an offspring who will come and crush the head of the serpent. The source of the poisonous voice that was listened to in the garden. And with this crushing blow, the offspring will defeat sin and death. So even as God is handing out judgment, he's giving a hope. He's giving promise of the end of sin and death. But the promise, this promise found in Genesis 3, will not be accomplished without opposition. We find there in those same words, in the same words of hope, a word of warning. There will continue to be great enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. So, as we come to Genesis 4, we should be looking for two things. First, we should be looking for the promised offspring. When we come to Genesis 4, see, we're too familiar. We're too familiar with the Bible often. When we come to Genesis 4, what should be ringing in our ears is the promise of Genesis 3.15, the hope that's given to Adam and Eve of the coming offspring. So we should be looking, where is this promised offspring going to come from? And we should also be looking out for snakes. You laugh, but I'm, I'm serious. There's going to be enmity, opposition between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. We should be looking for that offspring of the woman, the, the promised one to come, who's going to deal a death blow to sin and its consequences, but there's also going to be snakes. The rest of the Bible, you can actually see it all the way through the Bible. There's going to be this reference to asps. The poison of asps is underneath their lips. Alex McCauley came to me last week, I think it was last week, and he talked about, well, hey, so snakes are bad, but how about, how about when uh, Moses lifts up, right, the snakes in the wilderness so that they can look at the snakes and be healed? Do you remember that story? Maybe you don't remember that story. You need to re read your Bible more. So, so the snakes, they're killing the people in the wilderness, and Moses is told to hold up the bronze serpent there, and they will look to the serpent and they will be healed. Well, how about, the, they're told to look to the serpent. No, no. So, what does Jesus do when he's lifted up? He carries sin there, right? He's being lifted up. He carries sin and death upon himself. And he is lifted up for us to look to and find our salvation from sin and death. So it's all the way through the Bible we find this theme. So we should be looking for the promised offspring. We should also be looking out for snakes, the opposition, those who would oppose the promise. And so then as we open Genesis 4, as we, as we come to Genesis 4, it should not surprise us that Genesis 4 is a genealogy. That's what it is, a genealogy. As we talked about at the very beginning of Genesis, Genesis is all about genealogies. It is the book of generations. This genealogy in Genesis chapter 4 is marked by three clear sections. Three clear sections. Verse 1, verse 17, and verse 25, you find the common phrase for marital intimacy. Look at it there in verse 1. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. Look at verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. In verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. This marks out the three sections of the genealogy. We're only going to look at the first section today, verse 1 through 16, and then the next two sections next week. I'm going to do as best I can not to allude to anything happening in the next two sections as to not rob or steal the, the thunder from next week. 
Normally, I ask people to stand in, in honor of God's word as we read God's word, but because this is such a familiar passage, because this is such a familiar story, I'm going to approach it a little bit differently. We're going to walk through the text together, and I want, I want you to see this text as if you were seeing it for the first time today. I want you to see it. I want you to read it as if you were approaching it for the very first time today. I want you to have new eyes as you hear this story. Look at verse 1 and 2. Look out how it begins. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Eve knows her husband, Adam. Again, this phrase for the intimacy of marriage. And Eve bears a son, naming him Cain. Her response is noteworthy. She says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So what's the significance of Eve's response here? Maybe we've passed by it before. There is, I think, an echo here in her response, an echo of the expectation in Genesis 3.15. I have gotten a man from the Lord. She, like us, she is concerned about where is this offspring going to come from? They are looking, as a good reader should, they are looking for the one who will come to defeat sin and death. However, however, if you listen closely to what Eve says, if you listen closely to the emphasis of Eve's remark, what you will find there is perhaps a hint that there's some pride. You especially see this in contrast with her statement at the end of the chapter in verse 25. I said I'm not going to appeal to the next two sections. This will be the only, the only exception to that. If you look again at verse 25, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring. This is a contrast to what she says there in verse 1. If you also think, too, of other, other women in the biblical story, think Hannah or Mary. Remember when they're given children? What do they do when they're given children? They give all praise and all glory to the Lord. The Lord has done this. But Eve in verse 1 seems to, she seems to think a little bit much of herself and her involvement. And I, I think you also see this in what she names her son. Cain. Cain is related to the idea of something acquired or gained possession of. Cain is her possession and, by extension, of great value to her. This is something she has acquired. She has possessed. And then the text mentions that she has another son. And look what she names him. He is given the name Abel, and this name Abel is related to the word for vanity, breath, vapor. Think Ecclesiastes. Remember Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Or James talks about what is your life but a vapor that exists for a little while and then vanishes away. That's what Abel's name means. Promising, isn't it? So Cain is her valued possession. Abel is of little consequence, or so it seems. And this is where the genealogy is interrupted by a narrative. So it starts with genealogy, but then there is a narrative structure. Narrative structure in the middle of genealogy should be very noteworthy to us, should be something that causes us to pay attention Narrative structure, this is, this is a little bit of free help with reading your Bible. When you approach a narrative, you want to identify a plot. Plot, very basically, 
revolves around three phases. There is the build-up. Okay, there's three components. The build-up, and then the climax, and then the resolution. Every narrative follows this basic plot line. Build-up, climax, and resolution. The narrative is going to focus on these two brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain, the proud possession of his mother, and Abel, the lightweight. But as we see the story build, as we see the story develop, we see some unexpected twists. Look at it there in verse 2. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep. And Cain, a worker of the ground. First we see what they do. Abel's a shepherd. And interestingly, Abel is mentioned first. Cain is a farmer. He tills the ground. Then we see that in the course of time, they both bring an offering to the Lord. Look at it there. Verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Now, while we are not told of the quality of Cain's offering, we are told of the quality of Abel's. This is important. Cain is said to bring an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Makes sense. But Abel brings an offering of the firstborn from his flock and of the fat portions. Now, when you hear fat portions, you're like, ugh, fat portions, right? Not my granny. My granny loved, she, she would cut off the fat and eat all the fat, right? We see that he brings the firstborn and the fat portions, meaning He brings the very best. His sacrifice, his offering costs him dearly. Abel is pictured here as holding nothing back from the Lord. And by this description of Abel's offering, we are given insight into Cain's offering. Cain's mind and heart does not seem to be directed towards the Lord at this point. Abel has a reverence for the Lord by what he brings, but Cain seems to be going through the motions. None of us can relate to that, can we? I thought about this as we were singing. I thought, is this where we are this morning? Are we going through the motions today? That's why we have a call to worship, by the way. I know Seth mentioned it earlier about trying to get everybody to come in and, and, and cease from your conversations. We love that you're talking. But this is why we have the call to worship. The call to worship is meant to call us to worship. Because we know that when we get up in the morning and roll out of bed, our first disposition is not to worship. Is it? Maybe you're the person that just rolls out of bed and automatically say, Yes, Lord, I am here and I am worshiping you with all my heart and soul in life today. Or maybe we need to be called to worship. Maybe we need to be reminded. Maybe we need to be stoked a little bit. Maybe we need to be fanned a little bit. That flame, that worship. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're just going through the motions. You, you, you're pretty proud of yourself that you came to church this morning. I mean, not, not, not many other people come to church or go to church. Cain brings an offering just like Abel. Abel, though, has a reverence for the Lord by what he brings. Cain seems to be checking a box. Now, we know we're on the right track because Hebrews 11 actually interprets this passage for us. Hebrews 11:4 tells us, by faith, 
Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. What was it that made his sacrifice more acceptable? It was faith. Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice by faith through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. This is amazing. Here in Genesis 4, we see that Abel has the right heart disposition towards the Lord. He approaches the Lord with faith. And because of his faith, God approves and counts him righteous. Incredible. We also see the difference in their offerings, between their offerings, confirmed in the text right in front of us because of the Lord's response. Look at the Lord's response. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. The Lord accepts Abel's offering, but he does not accept Cain's offering. Again, this shows us that we cannot just come to the Lord any way we choose. I, I think some, some people think that it, is, that it is the obligation of the Lord to accept us in any way that we come. The Lord does not have to accept us. It is not his obligation to accept us. The Lord is not obligated to accept anyone. We cannot approach him as we choose. In fact, we find out there is only one way to approach him, and that is by faith. By faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord has regard for Abel's offering, but does not have regard for Cain's offering. And look at what this does to Cain. Have you seen this before? Verse 5. For Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord's disregard for his offering makes Cain very angry. I mean, he is hot. He is livid. He is filled with rage. And the text says that his face fell. I imagine them standing there at this giving of the offering, and the Lord accepts Abel's offering. Some people, some commentators think that that actually was demonstrated by fire coming from heaven and consuming the offering of Abel. That's possible. Somehow, Cain knew that his offering was not accepted. And so as he stands there and he realizes that his offering is not accepted, his face changes. His countenance falls. Did you know some of, I, my wife tells me this all the time. Other people tell me this. Your face, right? Your face doesn't look very good. Our face says a lot about what we're thinking, doesn't it? I have a real hard time faking it. I don't, I don't fake it very well. This is what happens, isn't it? When we are angry, our face, our countenance changes and indeed, the focus is on the eyes. Cain averts his eyes. He looks down. Cain is filled with rage and he looks away. He looks away from the Lord. The picture of putting one's head down. I can't look you in the eye. God's face, his eyes, do not regard or approve of the offering. And Cain, in response, turns his eyes away from the Lord. This is what we do when we're angry, isn't it? Can't look people in the eye. What fuels the anger of Cain? Why is he angry? Why does he turn his face away? You're never angry. You're never angry for no reason. And this, in fact, is what the Lord asks him. Now, if you want to see an angry person get even angrier, ask them why they're angry. 
That's exactly what the Lord does. Look at it there in verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? Why have you looked away from me? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Now, I want you to see this. This conversation that the Lord has with Cain, this is the Lord's intervention in Cain's life. And it is an intervention of mercy and grace. The Lord is so merciful and so gracious that he doesn't leave Cain in his disposition, but rebukes him by means of a question. Again, I I said it a minute ago, you want to see an angry person get even angrier, intervene in his anger. Ask him why he's angry. Do Do you see the questions of people in your anger as a means of grace in your life? Kids, when your parents confront you and ask you questions, do you double down on your anger? Or do you see it as their mercy and grace in your life? This is what it is. The Lord is asking, seeking to help him. Now this this inquiry that the Lord makes stands in contrast to the situation in Genesis 3. In fact, all, all of Genesis 3 and 4 is meant to mirror each other. This stands as a contrast to what happens in Genesis 3. In the previous chapter, you remember, it's the serpent's voice that seeks to persuade the woman to fall into sin. But here in Genesis 4, it's the voice of the Lord that seeks to dissuade Cain from sin. The question in chapter 3 is, will Eve be persuaded by the voice of the serpent? Here, the question is, can, can Cain be dissuaded? Will, will Cain listen to the Lord and his voice? The Lord asks Cain why he's angry, why his face has fallen, and he gives hope to Cain. He says to Cain, Cain, you don't have to go down this path. Can, can you see the Lord trying to stand in his way? Saying, you don't have to go this way, Cain. You don't have to make this choice. If you do well, will you not be accepted? The idea of will you not be accepted is, will your face not be lifted up once again? If you, if you do well, will you not again enjoy my presence and my face Will you not again be able to look me in the eye? If you do well, will you not be accepted, Cain? But if you do not do well, Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. You must rule over it. Here again, we see the grace and mercy of God in giving Cain a warning. Sin is pictured here as a wild beast waiting on the porch. And the Lord uses language that again should remind us of Genesis 3. He's reminding Cain of the judgment passed upon Eve, the woman, in chapter 3. Remember, remember what the Lord says to Eve in chapter 3, your desire will be contrary to your husband and he will rule over you. This is the same language. He's trying to remind Cain Sin will come with consequences. He's wanting to give Cain the clear warning. There will be consequence for you if you do not master or rule over sin. Sin is against you. It is waiting for you. You must rule over it. You must overcome it, Cain. Don't give in to it. I can't help but think, I cannot help but think that there are some of us who who we are told over and over and over again of the danger of sin, and yet we we are all too quick to open that door just a little bit. Let's see what this sin is all about out here on the porch. 
Sin is a dangerous beast that is contrary to us. We must rule over it. I say often that we are in a war. Verses like this show us that we are in a war. If you are not actively killing your sin, your sin is killing you. You are not, there is no neutral in the Christian life. You must be actively seeking to rule over your sin. And if you are not, it is killing you. It is against you. It is not for you. And when somebody comes to you and gives you rebuke or warning, you should listen to them. Hey man, you're going down the wrong road. Don't you see what's going to happen? Don't go this way. And instead of loving that person, you hate that person and tell that person to get out of your face, right? Because you think you've got it covered. No, sin is against you. It is a wild beast and it is on the porch and it's going to kill you. And that's what the Lord does. Can you imagine? The Lord himself intervenes. So this brings us, this brings us to the climax of the story. To this point, it's all been built up. We see the interplay between Cain and Abel. We see the sin of Cain hovering there, his anger at not being accepted. So at this point, and you know you've reached the climax of the story because you have a lot of questions that don't yet have answers. You have a lot of questions that don't yet have the answers. And here are the questions. Will Cain listen to the voice of the Lord? Will he conquer his sin? Will Cain have his face lifted up to meet the Lord's approving gaze once again? Those are the questions. Let's see where it goes. Verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. There are several texts that actually contain the content of that conversation. I don't think those are original to the text. We're not given the actual content of their conversation. But I'm sure it had something to do with asking him to go out into the field I don't know how he presented that, but he asks Abel to accompany him out to the field. Notice it calls Abel his brother. Seven times in this passage, it refers to Abel as Cain's brother, his brother, his brother, his brother. Seven times. This is meant to drive home the point that Abel is indeed his brother brother, which makes what is about to happen the most abhorrent sin that can be imagined. When they were in the field, think about this, Abel is unsuspecting. Abel is going along with his brother. When they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Cain does not heed the voice of the Lord. Cain does not overcome sin. Instead of killing sin, he kills his brother. Cain will not find approval from the Lord. Abel is dead. Abel, the one whose name means vapor, lives up to his name. So a story that started with a question and a looking for the promise of Genesis 3.15, that story has ended in despair. The one born to the woman is evil. The unexpected source of hope is killed. However, the narrative is not done. Here we see a familiar pattern emerge. 
Again, a familiar pattern to Genesis 3. As I said, Moses purposely tells Genesis 4 in a way that will call you to remembrance of Genesis 3. And what he's trying to communicate is things have not changed. Just like the Lord did in chapter 3, the Lord enters the scene to invite a confession. Remember, he's looking for Adam in Genesis 3 now. Verse 8, the Lord said to Cain, verse 9 actually, the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? The Lord is inviting a confession from Cain. But along with this familiar pattern, we see an unpromising progression. Whereas Adam and Eve shift the blame, Cain outright lies and even calls into question the legitimacy of the question itself. Look at it, what he says. When the Lord says, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? You you could hear him say, am I the shepherd's shepherd? This is, again, you want to see an angry person get even angrier? Ask him why he's angry. You want to see an angry person get even angrier? Ask him more questions. Point out his sin. This is what we do, isn't it? It, maybe none of you deal with anger. As I'm, as I'm, as I'm reading this, I'm, I'm reading myself, and I'm going, oh my goodness. I don't like it when people ask me questions, and I don't like it when they ask me precise questions. I don't like it when they point out my sin. What do people do when you point out their sin? Am I my brother's keeper? <laughs> that, not only, you, 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 you have asked me a wrong question. Your question is stupid. I don't approve of that use of that word in other cases, but that's what an angry person does, isn't it? They justify themselves. They defend themselves. <laughs> you're always, you're always asking me questions. Look at you always acting like I'm the wrong one. That's what you do, isn't it? That's what anger does. And this is what happens to Cain. Am I responsible for my brother? What a stupid, what an unfair question to ask me. So the text is clearly showing this progression. He's clearly indicating that there has been a hardening of heart here that has taken place with Cain and his sin. And this trajectory will be clearly demonstrated in Cain's descendants. So here's, here's the point. Man is not headed in a good direction. Man is not going in a good good way. If you thought chapter 3 was bad, get a load of Cain. If you think Cain is bad, look at his descendants. If you think his descendants are bad, just keep reading. It's not getting better. And on and on it goes. Whereas Adam's guilt is evidenced by the fact that he heard the voice or the sound of the Lord. You remember that Genesis 3? He hears the sound or the voice. You could translate it that way. He hears the sound or the voice of the Lord entering the garden. He runs and hides. Adam's guilt is evidenced by the fact that he heard the voice and the sound of the Lord and hid himself because he was naked and afraid. Now the guilt of Cain is evidenced by another voice. Look at verse 10. The Lord says in verse 10, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The blood of Abel speaks from the ground. His blood is given personification. The Lord is saying, I don't need you to tell me what you've done because the blood of your brother is shouting out to me. It's crying out to me, guilty! It's a cry for vengeance. 
It's a cry for justice. The blood speaks to the Lord from the ground. The ground also is given personification. It's pictured as, as, a, as the ground is pictured as having a wide, gaping mouth that drinks in the blood of Abel, his brother. The blood that was shed by Cain's hand. So the blood of Abel cries out for justice against the guilty Cain from the ground. The ground that Cain has profaned by the murder of his brother. And here we see a development again, a very unpromising progression here. In chapter 3, the ground and the serpent had been cursed. But now we see here in chapter 4, Cain is cursed. The ground will no longer give him sustenance for life. It will no longer provide food. And Cain will be forced to live away from his family, the family that has received the promise of a seed. He will be forced into exile to be a wanderer and a stranger. When it says he goes to live in the land of Nod, the word Nod there means wandering, the land of wandering. Cain will be forced out and forced to wander. This is the second exile in as many chapters. And the trajectory for man is not good. Cain's response to the punishment, not through yet, Cain's response to the punishment is also telling of the progression of sin and its effects. When, when the Lord hands down judgment, look at Cain's response. In verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wonder on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Cain's response to the punishment, while very sad, is also very telling. In short, here's what Cain says. It's too much. It's not fair. This is what we do in our sin, isn't it? We don't like to be confronted in our sin. We don't like to be rebuked. We don't like to be helped. When somebody asks questions or pokes around specifically, we get even angrier. And then when we have the consequences given to us for our sin, it's not fair. You want to know how somebody's repentant? Somebody's repentant when they accept the consequences and understand that the consequences are just. As I said last week, you can choose your sin, but you cannot choose your consequences. The consequences will be chosen for you for your sin. And whatever consequences we get for our sin, trust me, it's far better than we deserve. Cain shows the hardening of his heart. It's too much. He has worldly sorrow for his sin. Says, I'm driven away from the ground that gives life. I won't be able to live. I'm driven away from your presence, your face that gives life. And as a wanderer, I will be killed by whoever finds me. A mark is on me and on my head. But here again, we see the just and merciful, just and merciful penalty. Look at what the Lord does, look at how he responds. This is in verse 15. In response to Cain's saying, this isn't fair, it's too much. Then the Lord said to him, not so. Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who, who found him should attack him. Look at what he does. Here, once again, in the face of man's sin, we see the Lord respond with justice, but also mercy. He gives Cain a mark. Now it's debated, right? All the commentators debate, what is this mark? What's the mark look like? We don't know. We're not told, but we, are, we do know that it's an obvious mark, and it's a mark that would keep people away. It's also a mark that will continue to remind Cain of his sin, much like the animal coverings, the skins given to Adam and Eve in chapter 3 that were given to cover them in their sin. This was a mercy to them, but also a constant reminder of their sin. 
the Lord protects Cain. Because this is who the Lord is. Merciful, gracious, just, and righteous. But always showing mercy and grace. And then we see at the very end, verse 16, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. I told you, anytime you see east, going east, this is symbolic of going away from the presence of the Lord. Cain, in effect, is made homeless. He has nowhere to lay his head. Now we will see in the following section, Cain will build a city and there will be some culture that is developed by man and I'll I'll leave that on the bone for next week. But, But Cain is in effect homeless. He's driven out away from the presence of the Lord east of Eden. By the way, if you want a good book, John Steinbeck's book, East of Eden, right? If, if you have a weak stomach, don't read it. But what a wonderful book describing the nature of man and their sin and their separation. Brother, it's, it's amazing. You should read it. Unless you have a weak stomach, then don't read it. Get the cliff notes. I want to spend the last just few minutes talking about the implications here of this story. Again, it's a familiar story but one that we need to see with fresh eyes. I want, to, I want to give you some implications. The first one, and I've, I've already done it a few times. I've already said this a few times. Genesis 4 disabuses us of any notion that mankind is getting better. Now, you, you don't need... That, I, I don't think, right? You don't, you don't need Genesis 4 to tell us that because we can look with our own eyes and, and see. Mankind is not getting better. As I prayed this morning, our world is filled with violence. Mankind is wicked, evil, and it's not getting better. I've also told you in the past, I'm an eschatological optimist. What does that mean? That means I have hope in the gospel. I believe the gospel actually does change people's lives. I believe the gospel actually can change societies. I believe the gospel can do amazing transformative work, right? That's the power of the gospel. So we aren't huddled up saying, oh, it's just getting so bad out there. Let's, Let's cloister up and keep ourselves away from all the bad people. No, no, because we realize the badness, the sin, the evil is right here. And we cloister up together, guess what's going to be right in the middle of us? That sin, that evil, and the wickedness. Our hope isn't in trying to get away from the world. No, our hope is in the gospel. But I want you to understand that our world, our society, our culture is not improving. never has been. And if your hope is in that, you're going to be greatly disappointed. It's staggering to me how, how more and more people are buying into this idea that, that maybe we can change things. Maybe we get the right president in office. Maybe if we get the right people in, in the right places, we can see society change in this way. No, 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 no. If society will change, if man will change, it is only the gospel that will do this. Man is not getting better. Better Man is not on a good trajectory. I also, as part of this, kind of a sub-point to this, and you need to hear it, the wicked will always kill the righteous. The enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent, that enmity is real. It's not make-believe. <clears throat> you preach the gospel, you stand for the truth, I was reminded again of that this week. Listen, the Bible is true, and we do not have to apologize for that. The Bible is true, and we can unapologetically stand on it. But if we stand on God's word, we will be hated for that. And if you stand in the truth, you will be killed. That's what our expectation is. 
So if you're seeking to be the friend of the world, this is what 1 John tells us, friendship with the world is enmity with God. The righteous will be killed. Now that doesn't mean we, we are jerks. Just because we stand unapologetically on the Bible does not mean we're jerks about it. We shouldn't try to be inviting people's hatred towards us. I just want to make the point that when we preach the truth, that is not going to be popular. It will be silenced. In fact, if you read in the New Testament, Abel, Abel is referred to as the first prophet. His blood is the first prophet's blood that is shed. Abel, standing for righteousness, is killed for his stance. Number three, this is, <laughs> this is very important. Murderous hatred and anger. Murderous hatred and anger is the character of those who are headed to hell. Murderous hatred and anger characterizes those who are going to hell. Again, we have the New Testament's help with this. Listen to 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 through 15, as 1 John actually interprets Genesis 4 for us. Listen to this. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know, get this, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We are too light on sin. We are too, too light on seeing and judging correctly man's sin. Churches are full of people who hate one another. And 1 John tells us that if you hate your brother, you are not headed to eternal life. Very clear. Because we see this, and if, if we will hold to this reality, th this will show us what true conversion looks like. You know, we have a problem in our churches that we, we aren't able to see what real conversion looks like. You know why we can't see what real conversion looks like? Because we have watered down what sin is. If you're nice and you mow your lawn, and you take out your trash, and you vote correctly, you must be a Christian. If you're nice, then you must be a Christian. No, no. Conversion isn't about being nice. It's not about being a good citizen. Conversion is the radical transformation of a sinner a murderous, hateful, angry man becomes one who loves the brothers. That's conversion. Get real, people. We need an emphasis on conversion and the work of God that only God can do. What kind of God can take a Cain and make him one who loves his brother. See, that is the gospel witness and testimony that our earth needs to see. Kids, I want you to listen to me. Kids, listen. Kids, listen. I'm talking to everyone who is a kid, okay? Everyone, let's, let's just make our kid range big. If you're, if you're 16, 17 years old and younger, I want you to listen to me. Your fighting with your siblings is not a small issue. 
I want you to, his, I want you to hear me. Sibling rivalry and fighting and hating and biting and kicking and stealing and lying about your brothers and your sisters, this is not a small issue. You need to understand that the hatred that you have for your brothers and sisters, the jealousy, the envy, the kicking, the, the screaming, the fighting, this is actually evidencing that you are not headed to heaven. You are on your way to eternal wrath. You need to see that. It's not a small issue. Oh no, that's just kids being kids. No, it's murderous hatred. Evidencing itself in the life of unregenerate people. See it for what it is. And preach the gospel, parents. Don't, don't, don't sweep over. Oh, well, that's just what kids do. No. They need the gospel. They need to be saved. This also shows us the importance of unity in our churches. Unity. We need unity in our churches. Why? Because we are the people of God who have been converted, who have been made new, who are loving one another. This is the sign that we have gone from death to life. I, I hope parents get questions this week. Did Pastor Paul say I was headed to hell? Parents, I hope you answered that question correctly. Now, this chapter ends, or this section ends, without much hope. It's not getting better. The wicked will kill the righteous. Murderous hatred and anger is the character of those headed to hell. But we can't stop there very quickly. We read it in our liturgy. This section ends without hope. But we must stop and consider once again the blood of Abel that speaks to God of Cain's guilt. Hebrews 12, 24. Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. Listen to this. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and he says, you've come to the assembly of the firstborn, Christian. Christian, you've come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And he says, you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And you've come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The sprinkled blood of Jesus, the mediator of, of the new covenant, his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Where the blood of Abel cries out, guilty! The blood of Jesus cries out, forgiven! Where the blood of Abel cries out, justice! The blood of Jesus cries out, satisfied! Where the blood of Abel cries out, vengeance! The blood of Jesus cries out, it is finished. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of of Abel, and it is the blood of Jesus that speaks for me. Does the blood of Jesus speak for you? Oh, I hope so. Have you come to Jesus in faith? Have you turned from your sin and placed your faith and trust in the blood of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus? Are you standing confident in the blood of Jesus that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel? Christian, treasure the blood, the blood that speaks for you. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for Genesis 4. We, th we thank you for some, uh, some of the discomfort that we feel as we approach your word. 
Lord, you do not leave us in our sin. You confront our sin. You, you are not treating our sin lightly. You are lovingly confronting us and showing us the way of escape. You are showing us the way to truly have victory over sin. I pray for anyone here who does not know those that from four years old all the way to 84 years old, I pray that you would give the ability to see your grace and mercy in the provision of your son, Jesus, Father. And that today, sinners would turn from their sin and place their faith in Jesus. And for those of us who know the Lord Jesus as our Savior, I pray that we would once again look to him as we lift our eyes to Jesus, our glory and our prize. And not away from you anymore, we can look, take our eyes and look to you because of what Jesus has done. Thank you. We praise you and glorify you in all this. Amen.